The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Heyman Han with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for September 17, 2022. Today is Constitution Day. It marks the day in 1787 when 39 delegates to the Constitutional Convention met for the last time to sign the document meant to provide a framework for the new government of the United States. But as we know, that signing wasn't the end of the story. Having been amended 26 times since then, the Constitution is a living document capable of addressing new problems for governance that arise as the nation matures. One such amendment, which has been in the news recently, has to do with the provision about how a president can be removed from office by the cabinet. But there is much more to the 25th Amendment than just that. Former Lawfare Associate Editor Matthew Kahn actually spoke with a real live framer of the Constitution, John Fierick, one of the drafters of the 25th Amendment. In celebration of Constitution Day, here's their conversation from March 17, 2018. Listening to the Lawfare Podcast, March 17, 2018. In 1963, John Fierick became a witness to and a framer of our constitutional history. Within two years of graduating from law school, Fierick had written an influential law review article on presidential disability and succession, joined the ABA's Blue Ribbon Commission to create a solution to those problems and become a confidant and advisor to the members of Congress who wrote the 25th Amendment. Among other things, the 25th Amendment created a way for the vice president and a majority of the cabinet, and if necessary, supermajorities in Congress, to temporarily transfer the executive powers to the vice president. As many in the public wonder about the current president's fitness, I had the pleasure of going up to Fordham Law School, where Fierick is now Dean Emeritus for an enlightening conversation about the page of the Constitution that he helped write. We talked about how Dean Fierick got involved in the creation of the 25th Amendment, and how political leadership and the public should understand it in modern times. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode 292, a real living framer of the Constitution. I'm interested in how you got involved in the 25th Amendment. As I understand it, a few years after you graduated from law school, you wrote a law review article the problem of presidential inability, will Congress ever solve it? 
And it caught the eye of some folks at the ABA, and they asked you if you wanted to get involved in a congressional effort to solve it. Is that about right? How did you become involved in, in the congressional effort to resolve this problem? Very substantially correct with this additional information. I saw something about this problem in a publication pretty much as I was graduating from law school. And uh, I had a classmate at college who had clippings of uh, inabilities that uh, President Eisenhower sustained. And uh, it seemed interesting to me as a subject to write on. I had been a political science major at college. I had a particular fascination with the Constitution and the presidency. And I really decided in 1961, as I graduated, class of 61, to do some research. And, and, and then I spent the next two and a half years. I was in the service for six months, uh, Army Reserve Unit, Infantry Unit, and then reserve duty after that. Uh, so I spent the next period of time working on it, and I essentially had a, uh, a completed article by April of 63, and the Law Review uh, had no room in, in, in its issue at that point and said that they would print the article in October of 63. And it came out a month before President Kennedy's assassination, and as you point out, when he was assassinated, uh, my article had uh, was a focus of a New York Times column by Arthur Kroc, and before I knew it, I was getting requests to assist the media. CBS was going to do a program on presidential succession. And in December, uh, November and December of 63, the American Bar Association asked me if I would be willing to serve on a blue ribbon commission of 12. I'm the only one still alive. And, and the next several years of my life after that became a very challenging period. I was practicing law in a, in a law firm where there was a high expectation of your billable time. Uh, but whatever time I had uh, on weekends and holidays, vacation time, uh, I continued my reading, my study of that subject. And then I, I was asked by Senator Bayh and, and his staff, Larry Conrad was the general counsel, to help out in different ways, take a look at things, make suggestions. And I, for reasons not clear to me anymore, I developed a relationship with uh, Richard Poff uh, from Virginia, who... Was a congressman, uh, right? Yeah, he was a very significant uh, person in the House, along with the chair of the committee, Emanuel Seller from New York, and McCullough from Ohio. And I just stayed with it. I also was asked by the ABA if I would chair a, a, a committee of young lawyers that would be promoting the amendment in every state in the country. And I, I agreed to do that, and they were very active. It got going in, in March of 64, as I recall, and the, the young lawyers played a significant role even in, in communicating with the members of Congress from their states to uh, support the ABA recommendations, basically. So what were the arguments that you and the other ABA lawyers were making to members of Congress as to why we needed to change the presidential succession system? You alluded to the examples of Presidents Eisenhower and President Kennedy. What was the fear and what was the problem? What were the pitches you were making? Well, I, I think the President Kennedy's assassination uh, focused the issue of disability because, as columns at the, at the time and the different newspapers pointed out, that was a great tragedy for our country and certainly for my generation at the time. Had he not died and had been wounded, 
we would have had a, a president disabled in office, which would raise the questions that hovered over this area of the Constitution since John Tyler's succession in 1841. And that is, uh, what is the status of a vice president who takes over in the case of inability? Uh, the president already had been set because of John Tyler that in the case of the death of a president, the uh, vice president takes over and becomes president of the United States. And in a provision that one could read as forecasting the same result no matter what the contingency might be, death, resignation, removal on impeachment, or inability. So you had uncertainty from a constitutional standpoint on that issue. And then the second issue is who has the power to declare a president disabled? How do you formalize that? And then once you have formalized it, what happens if the president wants to resume his powers, recovers from a disability? So you had those kind of issues around. We had a suffered periods where a president was assassinated or a president had, had, a, had a stroke. Assassinated was Garfield. Have a stroke was, was Wilson. And there was a lot of confusion as to how do we handle that as, as a country. And so vice presidents didn't want to get involved. They said that there's nothing that instructs me to get involved. Cabinets were prepared to support a succession by the vice president, but they had the sticky issue is what was the status of a vice president who succeeded in a case of inability. Could the president recapture his powers and duties? Eisenhower, having suffered three disabilities, felt there should be some protocols. Eisenhower had worked out an agreement with his vice president which was followed by Kennedy and Johnson, and then by when Johnson uh, succeeded to the presidency based on a Tyler president, the Speaker of the House of Representatives was next in the line of succession, and they had worked out the protocol. And the protocol basically uh, called for president declaring his own disability, and if he couldn't declare his own disability, the vice president could do so after appropriate consultation. However, it was in a letter, a letter that could be abrogated at any time, and it didn't have the force of law. And in both cases, as soon as the president felt he was able to resume his powers and duties, he would do so. Eisenhower frustrated, I think, because Congress didn't uh, act on a permanent law. There were hearings uh, in, in the late 1950s focused on a proposed constitutional amendment, but nothing went forward. And those hearings continued uh, in the early years of the Kennedy administration. So the assassination of President Kennedy and the focus uh, in the media at the time, and then the uh, leadership that Senator Barr and Emanuel Seller in the House start to give to the subject, really continuing the uh, congressional activity that had taken place in, in a lot of uh, 1950s and early 1960s, and with the great promotion of solving the problem by the lawyers of America, and they had a plan, and the plan was the ABA consensus, that the group that I had the honor to uh, you know, be, be part of. So you guys came up with a plan, but when Congress took up the issue, there were some disagreements about what the actual solution should be, who should be making the determination, whether it should be a commission of doctors, the president's closest political advisors in the cabinet, what the role of the vice president should be. What were the most prominent proposals, and how did you settle on what ultimately became the 25th Amendment as the best solution? Well, at the time of the president's assassination, we were in 1963, the leading uh, proposals based certainly in the Senate essentially said we give Congress the power 
to determine the president's inability and, and the resumption of the president's ability. And also that proposal, which contemplated a constitutional amendment, said that in the case of inability, the vice president just acts as president. So that would have given Congress a lot of leeway. The detailed proposal that involved the vice president and the cabinet with a major role dealt with the importance of protecting the presidency against a situation where politics might rush a determination of inability, one that respected uh, separation of powers. And so the emphasis was on the vice president and the cabinet as a way of protecting uh, the office of presidency and also a, a process that gave confidence to the people because these were people around the president who, who had the power. Now, the proposal that was around at the time for a commission uh, contemplated a mixed commission. It had many proposals, some involving doctors, but one that got a lot of prominence in the, in the 1964 period had members of Congress, had justices of the Supreme Court, and had members of the cabinet, so a mixed commission. So you had a lot of different commissions uh, idea around. But the compelling uh, argument was that the cabinet and the vice president could act quickly, would have more information, would be protective of a runaway power in terms of being misused because this was a group that the president had an association with through appointing the members of the cabinet. He, he ran with the vice president, who uh, was the only other nationally elected official with, uh, other than the president. So a uh, principal argument was based on the cabinet and the vice president and their relationship with the president. There were a lot of proposals around at the time, in, in addition to the commission that I just mentioned and the ABA approach. As the ABA conversation went on and said, let's give Congress in the amendment the ability to change the method if the method and, and the reasons for the method did not work. Uh, so, so for those who had other ideas, uh, uh, they, they saw the approach of the cabinet and the vice president not being one that's locked into the Constitution forever because there was a power given to Congress to change the method. However, that power did not include the vice president, so that whatever Congress might choose to do in the future of the country, Congress could do by law, but law would be subject to presidential veto. But you could not change the vice president. Vice president was locked into the process that if the vice president who ran with the president felt it was not appropriate for him to assume the powers and duties of the president, then the amendment didn't go forward at that point. Now, there's this famous quote from in the impeachment context where he says that in the course of an effort to impeach Justice Douglas, he says that an impeachable offense is whatever a majority of the House of Representatives says it is. But the 25th Amendment seems like the, for the cabinet, for the vice president, and should that play out for Congress making a decision about the president's reaffirmation of his ability, that what they should be considering is quite different, that it's not just a political matter. What, when, when drafting this, were the considerations that they should be thinking about? It doesn't deal with policy differences. It doesn't deal with uh, incompetence, you might say, in handling something. Uh, and uh, political differences, uh, uh, lack of popularity, that, that's not disability. And, and, it, and if something's impeachable, that's, that's, not, that's, not, that's not for the 25th Amendment. Well, it is it, it, a political aspect to it. Uh, in, in a sense, uh, vice president has been elected by the people through the Electoral College, like the president has, so has a national source of support, you might say. 
and, and by the cabinet that have been uh, approved by, by the Senate. So you have political actors, if I can put it in, in those terms, with, with the power to make a judgment on if it be a medical disability, and it may not be a medical disability, they have to sift through uh, information from doctors, from whatever information is available about how they, in their personal relationship, have seen the president. I mean, it would have been at, at meetings with the president, so they would have information far beyond medical information just from their everyday contact, if there is everyday contact, or if not, what the absence of contact might mean. And you may have a contingency such as president is out of communication. He travels, he travels to some far land and he can't be reached. And there's a power in the amendment under section four for the vice president and the cabinet to uh, uh, deal with that situation, or if a president was kidnapped. So Medical information is certainly, in the in debates, it talked about physical inability, and, and it would be a lot of medical evidence there, but also a lot more evidence by those around the president in terms of his conduct. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing, since then every couple of months I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, 
big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. It strikes me that you talk about, you know, that you've entrusted these people who are close to the president to use their daily or their regular interactions with him or her as the basis for thinking about their ability to execute the responsibilities of the office. But I'm, I'm curious, that seems that while they might be so well situated by virtue of their proximity to the president, that they also have loyalty to him. When you guys were thinking about the amendment, did you consider that proximity to be more of an asset or more of a liability, and, and in what ways? I would say that the discussions of the ABA group, we had in that group Herbert Brownell, who was attorney general under Eisenhower, had, had a lot to do with the proposed constitutional amendments that were being uh, considered during the Eisenhower years. We saw it this way, I would say, as a generalization. And I, I did a book from Failing Hands, and I have a long discussion of the ABA dis, uh, meetings. And the fact that there might be a, a reluctance to use the power because of closeness to the president, as you say, has a, a virtue to it because the people through, through the Electoral College have chosen the president for a four-year term. And I would say that there's an expectation that that term be protected because of the electoral mandate. And so the uh, reluctance that might exist strikes me as not a, a negative. Now, if one were to look back on history 
for example, Garfield's cabinet. He was, as you know, assassinated. But 80 days, uh, the cabinet and the vice president and the public were commenting uh, on that. You look at, at the Wilson uh, inability that could have gone on through, it certainly went on for a long time. Whether it went to the end of the term, one, one could say yes, one could say no. In both cases, the cabinet were very supportive, uh, were supportive of the idea of the uh, vice president acting as president. Uh, the vice president was reluctant because, uh, one, he, he thought the Constitution had no instruction to him that he should act as, as the president. He didn't want to be seen as a usurper. And even though he would have presumably have had the support of the cabinet, but you had the, had the issue of status of the, of the vice president, the lack of clarity. So the historical record doesn't suggest, uh, I, I don't think, that the uh, cabinet and vice president in appropriate circumstances would, would fail to do what they uh, had to do. But I think what you're conjuring up is a situation where the public would be informed in some way of what was happening, and the public would be speaking through their, in, in different ways, through their representatives and in the face of overwhelming uh, evidence and uh, the, the vice president and the cabinet having the power, refused to use the power, you, you'd have, a, a, I guess you might say, a, a national crisis of, of sorts. However, the, the positive side is, if we ever had a Section 4 situation where the cabinet and the vice president, if seen as, uh, as reluctant, and, and you assume that you have a, 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 a situation that compels the use of Section 4, and they act accordingly, this is a group close to the president, around the president, and I think it's more likely to have public confidence than not. In the last five, six years, I was asked by the dean of our law school to create a presidential succession uh, clinic. Dean Trainer, who's now the dean of Georgetown Law School, I was dean of Fordham Law School at the time, asked me to create a presidential succession clinic. And I, I hesitated for a while because I wasn't quite clear how to do that. But with the help of others, I set up a, uh, a clinic of maybe 9, 10, 11, 12 students who studied gaps in the system. Not to go over what we did in, uh, in 1963 and 64, but to take a look at the current system of succession. Working with the students and John Rogan, we identified issues to make recommendations about that we considered gaps in the system. When I say we, the students considered gaps in the system. It was their work. I supervised. And we developed a, a number of recommendations in uh, looking at different gaps in the system. And it's, it's invaluable uh, work to try to, try to improve the system. Uh, the 25th Amendment uh, only dealt with one area that needed correction and uh, explanation, so to speak, in the Constitution because of the historical uh, ambiguities. And that's, that's what the volume is, a lot of recommendations there. For example, how do you deal with a dual disability of the president and the vice president at the same time? Uh, 25th Amendment doesn't work in that uh, situation because it contemplates the vice president and the cabinet, if you, if you ever got to Section 4, or the president passing over his powers to the vice president and you have a disabled vice president, and if the president is disabled at the same time, how do we deal with that? So there's a re recommendations on that. And, and even under the 25th Amendment right now, suppose 
you had an able president and you didn't have a vice president and the vacancy had not been uh, filled, if the president was going in for an operation and he wanted to transfer powers and duties, the powers and duties would be transferred to the Speaker of the House, Speaker of the House maybe of another party. And, uh, and, and then what about a situation where you have a Section 4 and uh, you have no vice president? Students have grappled with those kind of issues and have made recommendations. And they also took a look at the current line of succession where the power goes to the speaker, the president pro tem, and, and the heads of the, uh, of the executive departments. And the students feel that the legislative leaders should be removed from the line of succession. It should be a, a line of succession that runs through the cabinet departments. And I think they would re- restructure the, uh, the cabinet line of succession certain departments being uh, viewed as key departments, and also students seem to uh, think there was some benefit to uh, expand the line of succession, maybe to beyond the cabinet. Well, and in addition to a lot of really fascinating recommendations about the constitutional provisions of presidential succession, the most recent clinics report also makes several really interesting recommendations about some of the non-constitutional elements of presidential succession, like the role of the president's physicians. What do you think are his or her responsibilities as both being a confidential medical advisor to the president while also being watchful for the role that they have to play in the constitutional process that you helped create? I would say that the president's doctor, White House doctor, is a very, very important person. Uh, The office serves the president and others who work in the White House, including also the first lady and and the president's family, but that's not your question. And the the attention of the doctor certainly should be on the patient. And the doctor may need other doctors to deal with a particular uh, issue because that's not the doctor's specialty. But it seems to me that if the doctor has information that raises larger questions about the president's ability to discharge the powers and duties of the office, that would seem to me something appropriate to, to uh, discuss with the chief of staff. I would think that would be. I mean, I, I don't know that there's any, I, I don't know what protocols might exist. I do believe, and there have been a lot of recommendations about the, the role of the, of the doctor. Uh, certainly, a doctor should not be in a position of, uh, if there ever became a need to, to speak to the public, of being untruthful. But I'm thinking that, say, somebody else in the White House has concerns. I think it's something that should, should go to the chief of staff. One other area that the clinic I remember commenting on that I thought was quite interesting was part of how Congress, in the event of a disagreement, would investigate the president's health status and ability to, or if, if not a medical question, ability to execute his or her responsibilities. And one area that I thought was particularly interesting was the possibility of the invocation of privilege to protect the disclosure of certain information. Well, I think what the students under the uh, faculty supervision focused on was what a process might look like if Congress had uh, 21 days to decide a uh, a question of of the disagreement between a president on one hand and a vice president of cabinet on the other hand. So... So we uh, conferred with uh, a lot of people, including uh, staff in Congress and former counsels to uh, presidents and scholars and historians, 
for their views on, on the subject. So when the students came to uh, develop the idea of having a, a special committee, you might say, in, in, in Congress involving both houses of Congress, then there would be a need for uh, information. And they would be obviously seeking out information from the White House, from the doctor, the president's doctor, the president's uh, chief of staff, the president's uh, counsel, I would, I would assume, and maybe members of the president's family. And there may be issues of, uh, of privilege in there, but there's, there's history uh, from Watergate and uh, other instances where there's an entitlement to information in order to discharge a constitutional uh, responsibility. And, and just how that's handled, it strikes me, certainly by the uh, president and his counsel, uh, will be relevant to uh, maybe the very issue that uh, they're seeking information about. To what extent is information provided or to what extent is information not provided? It, it might eventuate in issuance of subpoenas and, uh, and uh, steps taken in, in court. Uh, and it's not a lot of time. You have just 21 days. But keep in mind what got Congress in was the vice president and the cabinet already uh, uh, making a judgment that the president uh, is unable to resume his powers and duties. So there presumably would be quite a, a lot of information just f from that source. I, I can't imagine the cabinet and the vice president in, those, in that circumstance not providing information. What do they make their decision on? There might be areas that where the privilege might be upheld. For example, uh, compelling the president's you know, spouse to provide information. Who knows how a court might deal with that or even how a committee might deal with that. But I would think that a committee also would make clear that a lot of information can be turned over in secrecy while they're trying to make their judgment. And obviously, there may come a time where you have to use the information. So uh, I, I, I hope we never have a Section 4. Yeah. But if we ever had a Section 4... Uh, there's certainly a lot of power that Congress has, I think, to get information. I think a lot of the reason why the 25th Amendment and Section 4 in particular is coming up now is because there are a lot of people who have questions about how it applies in the case of mental inability. It seems very clear that in the case of a president who might be in a coma, that the Section 4 provision obviously applies. But two of the members of Congress who you've mentioned already, Senator Bai and Congressman Pa, said that mental inability is something that should be considered as well. Senator Bai said that if the president is unable to make or communicate his decision as to his competency, that you might consider invoking Section 4. The congressman said that you should consider it, to, to paraphrase, whether there's a physical or psychological impairment, especially in a situation where you might think the president's not able to make a rational decision about his own or her own mental health. And I'm curious what your sense was at the time for how we should think about mental inability. Well, the legislative history, as you point out correctly, states that the uh, inability is, is not defined in the amendment to provide flexibility and, uh, and to avoid trying to come up with a definition that would fill an encyclopedia and be inappropriate for a constitution uh, such as the constitution we, we have. So, and throughout the uh, discussions and in, in the hearings and also in the debates in Congress, it was made clear that the amendment covers both physical and mental disabilities that uh, operate in a way to prevent you from discharging your powers and your constitutional powers and duties. And it could be all kinds of physical disabilities. 
and what I recall, illness in the context of uh, sanity and and insanity, and you have statements in the record about senility and uh, you know different uh, areas, uh, very much is in the uh, 25th Amendment area. However, as 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 Republican as Senator Rusker and others said. You really need hard facts and reliable facts. You just can't uh, deal with it on uh, speculation. Uh, And that's why uh, the two-thirds vote is in both houses of Congress to prevent the president from resuming his powers and duties. That's that's an even greater protection of the presidency than the impeachment two-thirds. Well, so I I have one last question. Uh, There was a comment made that I think really colored the way a lot of people are thinking about the 25th Amendment right now. And it actually came from one of the president's, President Trump's advisors, Steve Bannon, uh, Vanity Fair reported some time ago, made a comment to the president early in his term in office to the effect that the threat that President Trump should be concerned about isn't impeachment, but the 25th Amendment. Should the president be viewing the 25th Amendment's removal provision as something that threatens him or her, or should they view it as something else? I don't think any president uh, should uh, see the 25th Amendment as threatening. Take a look at the 25th Amendment. It makes, uh, first of all, as you pointed out before, it allows the president to fill a vacancy in the vice presidency. And, and, And that was not possible constitutionally before the 25th Amendment. It makes clear that in a case of inability, a vice president serves only for a duration of the inability. It also provides an opportunity for the president, as presidents have, have, have used, to declare his own uh, disability and immediately resume the powers and duties of the office when the uh, president is able to do so. And twice, uh, when President Bush transferred powers to his vice president, Dick Cheney, uh, it was a matter of hours that the uh, vice president was the acting president, and as soon as the president issued a declaration that he was able to uh, resume his powers and duties, he did so. So all of those, all of those provisions are uh, very favorable provisions. It strikes me from the standpoint of any president. With reference to Section uh, Four, president is protected because if one third plus one of either House of Congress sides with the president where there's a disagreement, the president resumes his powers and duties. And in any event, a president is never removed as the president of the United States and the title of president with the fact of being the president under the 25th Amendment simply is suspended from discharging the powers and duties for the duration of the inability. So uh, I have a different take on the amendment as an amendment that's very supportive of our country. Dean John Fierick, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Many thanks this week to Dean Fierick for a fascinating conversation. If you haven't yet, please share the Lawfare Podcast on Facebook, tweet about it, write a hip-hop musical about the creation of the 25th Amendment that features the Lawfare Podcast, and please give the podcast a rating and review wherever you listen to it. Our music is performed by Sophia Yale. Until next time, thanks for listening.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.